Well, I realize that this might be one of those first world problems that I should just get over. But I wanted to share with you something that was bugging me this past summer. And I wonder if some of you experienced this as well. So there were times during the summer where I wanted to travel north on 35W. And when I got to the Burnsville split, all of a sudden, with seeming no indicators ahead of time, 35W is closed. And it wasn't closed the day before. It wasn't closed a couple hours before. It wasn't closed the day after. But when I wanted to use 35W, they had just decided to shut it down, probably doing some some road work or whatever. And so you get to the interchange or get to that split, and MnDOT is taking you 35E. So now I'm going in the exact opposite direction that I would like. Up Cedar, 494. You can tell, like, it just bugged me. And truth be told, there's probably a schedule somewhere on some website that no one pointed out to me, and I probably would have forgotten to look at anyway. But it was a reminder to me, as I'm now you know, going 10, 15 minutes out of the way, that it can be nice to know what's going on up ahead. And in this case, a road that you weren't expecting to be closed. Generally speaking, this is a true statement about not just driving, but life. It's, it's good to know what's up ahead. And so I wanted to talk with you about something that I know is up ahead in 2024. There's a lot of things I don't know when it comes to what's up ahead this year, and you don't either. But there's one thing we do know, that in November, there's going to be an election. And it's, it's a big one again this year. Every four years, there's a presidential election, which also accompanies a whole bunch of other elections. And between now and then, there's going to be a lot going on. Your, your screens, remember this every four years, are going to be filled with ads and uh, messages and different directions on why this candidate is good and that candidate is bad. Uh, here's what I know, that there's going to be a lot of yard signs out. And lucky you, if you live next to that neighbor who has like 100 yard signs in his, in his yard or hers, you know exactly who they are for or not The news cycle, it's already starting, is going to be all about, you know, the election and and politics and lots and lots of fear. Here's what I also know. What's going on out there will also affect what's going on in here. In fact, I was thinking... I know a way to get everyone's blood pressure going today. I can just put up on the screen a list of the different things that are going to be a part of this year's campaign. And when you look at this list, obviously, many of them, you could have said the same thing for 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but there's crime, economy, education, environment, Equality, foreign policy, immigration, inflation. Like I said, some of you are squirming in your seats or in your couches at home, blood pressure going up a little bit. And I want to say this. Not all of that actually is bad. 
that the reason why sometimes we get a little bit tense is because we care. We care about our country. We care about the direction. We care about our kids and our grandkids and the country that they're going to live in. And so not all of that is necessarily bad, but here's something else that I think we've all noticed, that as politics in this country have become more polarized, emotions have also gotten more intense. Even thinking back to my adult years, which span you know, about 20 years or so, a little bit more than that, I, I noticed and I have noticed where this anger at government and frustration that in some ways has always been there has very quickly turned into over the last 10, 15 years, I think it has something to do with social media and the internet and there's a lot of other factors too, have become anger and frustration towards other people. And what do we do about all of this? What do we do about this as Christians? There's, there's a lot to navigate, isn't there? There's a lot to navigate in our culture and there's a lot to navigate specifically in this area of life. So let me tell you kind of the big key to navigating politics and then we'll, um, we'll talk about it. So it's our first fill-in for today. When navigating politics, informing the heart is the most important part. If you and I want to navigate politics, and little secret, that with most things in life, it starts with the heart. But especially today, as we think about politics, when it comes to, to navigating things in a way that is healthy and God-pleasing, it absolutely has to start with you and me and where we're focused and what our perspective is and an understanding, God's people, of a bigger picture. Now, today we have the blessing of being taught in scripture by the, the greatest teacher who ever walked this earth. He also happens to be our savior, Jesus. And what we're going to see is that there was a time where Jesus was asked to share his perspective on politics. Now, before we get to what he said, I want to kind of set up the background to this section. So we're going to be in just a moment in Mark chapter 12. But before we get there, context. So this is the, the last few days of Jesus' earthly life. It's the last few days before Jesus would die on a cross. And if you remember, the Sunday before the day he died, before that Friday that he died, we call it uh, in church world Palm Sunday. And it was a day where Jesus was welcomed with praises and palm branches on the ground and coats on the ground. There was seemingly a large amount of people in Jerusalem welcoming Jesus as a king into Jerusalem. And one of the things that Mark one of the gospel writers points out that happened is that the, the chief priests and the teachers of law, the Jewish leaders noticed all that was going on. In fact, it started way before Palm Sunday that Jesus was garnering a following, 
We read in Mark chapter 11, this is before our text, that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, all that had happened on Palm Sunday, and they began looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him. Do you know what they feared? They feared that if Jesus got popular, their popularity would go down. They feared what he was teaching, which was he was the Messiah, and all of the rules and the laws that they were so focused on, that there was forgiveness for those things, and that he would fulfill it, and they feared their popularity going away. They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching, and they began to follow him, or at least there was that potential they saw. So in Mark 11 and Mark 12, he writes about a bunch of different conversations that people around Jesus had with him during that last week. And what happened basically was the, the Jewish leaders would give Jesus really hard questions to answer so as to trip him up and hopefully find something for which they could either try him or eventually kill him. So that's the context as we turn to Hebrews, Mark chapter 12. This is one of those questions. So later they, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they sent some of the other Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. I want to pause there because you may not have known this about first century Israel, but there were like political parties going on. And, and two of them are, are mentioned. Two of these groups are mentioned here in this verse. We've got the Pharisees. And to be fair, it wasn't exactly a political party as much as it was a spiritual group of people who then sort of delved into politics a little bit. And, and the Pharisees, I guess what you'd want to know about them for the context of our section today is that they were anti-Rome. They were pro-Israel, pro-Jewish nation, pro-laws on the people, pro-their popularity, but very much anti-Rome. In fact, the best thing that could happen is that Rome would leave them alone. And then you had the Herodians. And you can kind of see the name Herod in there. And some of you might recognize Herod. I know that name. Uh, there was a Herod who was the uh, ruler designated by Rome for the area of Israel and specifically in the area around Jerusalem. And the Herodians who followed Herod, they were pro-Rome. They were Jewish, but yet they felt like their best opportunity to thrive and to have a good life was to just fall under the rule of Rome, to live with it, and to live in that way. So we've got the Pharisees who are anti-Rome. We've got the Herodians who are pro-Rome. And do you know what they're both against? Jesus. And so they try to get him to answer a difficult question. Verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. Wink, wink. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And if you think that they're kissing up to Jesus and kind of telling him what he wants to hear, you're right. That's exactly what they're doing. There's a lot of sarcasm that's going on in those verses of just like, again, kissing up to him. Here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay 
or shouldn't we? As I was studying this text this week, I recognized that I would say a vast majority of you have read this section. You probably already know Jesus' answer. But one of the things you may not exactly know is what specifically the Herodians and the Pharisees were asking. I want you to notice that as we read this translation of the Greek, that it's translated not just should we pay taxes to Caesar, but should we pay the imperial tax? And there's a little bit of background and history to this that I think is not just interesting, but also important. So the imperial tax was a tax that was imposed by Rome about 30 years before this moment, so right around the time that Jesus was born. And it was, it was basically a tax for the right to be a Roman citizen. Um, and so there were other taxes that people paid, but this one was a head tax. Every single person in the Roman Empire, this specifically right here, Jewish people in Israel had to pay this head tax, this imperial tax. It was one denarius for the year. A denarius was not necessarily a huge amount of money. A denarius works out to about a day's wage for a common laborer. So you can kind of you know, fill in for yourself approximately how much that would be. And on the scene, when this tax was instituted or begun, was a man named Judas the Galilean. Uh, you can read about him from a Jewish historian named Josephus. Uh, Gamaliel, in Acts chapter 5, if you want to read those verses this week uh, on your own, mentions Judas the Galilean. And, and Judas, he had an issue with this imperial tax. And it wasn't necessarily because it was a whole lot of money, we already talked about that, but because of what it said. Basically, it was saying that I need to pay to be under the rule of Caesar, and as a Jew, I'm not under the rule of Caesar. I'm under the rule of God, the God of the Bible. I'm not going to pay this tax for something that I'm not even necessarily in agreement with. Caesar doesn't rule me. God does. And so 30 years before this moment of this question that they had for Jesus, this tax was imposed and Judas led a revolt. And there's three parts to this revolt. One of the things that Judas did was he talked about the kingdom of God with the people. And specifically what he was talking about was the idea and thought that God was going to restore the earthly kingdom of Israel and that they needed to get rid of the Roman Empire. Also, what he did in that uh, rebellion was Judas, along with a, an armed group of his followers, cleansed the temple. What that meant for Judas was they essentially got rid of every Gentile and Roman who was in the temple to cleanse it from Gentile blood in the, in the temple, the house of God. And then finally, part of his rebellion was he told the Jews not to pay this tax. And 30 years before Jesus was asked this question, and Gamaliel references this in Acts chapter 5, do you know what happened to Judas and his uprising? It was squashed by Rome 
in an instant, in a moment, Judas and his revolt failed. Fast forward 30 years from Judas, or 33, to Jesus. You might have already, as you look at this list, noticed some of the similarities. Jesus, the Galilean from Nazareth, he taught a lot about the kingdom of God, not establishing the earthly kingdom of Israel and to get rid of the Romans, but the kingdom of God in our hearts that will last forever. But his message, he talked a lot about the kingdom of God. A day or two before he was asked this question, do you know what Jesus did? He cleansed the temple. But it wasn't focused on getting rid of Gentiles. Instead, he cleansed the temple from those who were dishonest and cheating people within the temple and the the temple courtyard. And there was one thing left. Would he tell the Jews not to pay the imperial tax. The Pharisees and the Herodians, many of them who would have been alive at the time of Judas the Galilean, were seeing also some symmetry here. And so they asked Jesus about this imperial tax and and understand what's at stake. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax like Judas did, well then Rome would come in the direction probably of Herod or of Pontius Pilate, and squash Jesus and this band of disciples. If he said, yes, you should pay the tax, well, then what the Pharisees were hoping is that he would lose the praise and the following of the people because they would be disappointed about this Jesus who they thought was going to establish, some of them at least, an earthly kingdom of God. How did Jesus answer this question? Next verse. Jesus knew what they were up to. He knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius. Again, that was the amount paid every year for this imperial tax, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Verse 17. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Literally in the Greek, what it says here is give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's more than just this tax or more than just taxes and give to God the things that are God's. And with this question that his enemies thought they were going to be able to corner him into one camp or another, Jesus very clearly shares and and shows that this is not an either-or type of thing, but it's a both-and. He gives this, what I would call, amazing reply that is also absolutely correct and true. Let me say it this way. 
we should give the government the things that it is owed, and we should give God the things that he is owed. And I know that this sounds very simplistic, but to me, it's exactly where, remember, the heart is the most important part, where our heart needs to be going in to the rest of 2024. That we need to, as Jesus said, give to the government the things that it is owed and then give to God the things that he is owed. That when it comes to navigating politics in culture in America in 2024, much like with Jesus, it's not an either or. I follow Jesus or I respect the government. It's a both and. And, and over and over again in the New Testament by people like Paul and like Peter, it's very clear the perspective of Jesus and the perspective of Jesus' inspired or the Bible's inspired writers about what God's will is when it comes to followers of Jesus and the government. So there's two things that I want us to remember and think about when it comes to government and God. The first is our second fill-in, that in a summary statement type of way, because there's more to it than this, but in a summary, one-sentence statement, I think a good summary would be, give the government your respect. Give the government your respect. And, you know, in, in every section of scripture that we preach on here at North Cross, one of the things that the preacher does is we take a look at the section, we take a look at what God is telling us, and we also ask ourselves, both personally and as a country and as a congregation, where is it that we sin against what God is teaching in this section? And, and I would say that when it comes to this topic and when it comes to giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, this area of giving respect to government is probably, not probably, it is one that our country and Christians are not immune, fall woefully short. The way that we talk about our government officials even if we don't agree with them, because it's not agreement that Jesus or that God is talking about. He's talking about respect. It is something that we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, is this the way that, that we should be talking? Is this the way that we should be posting? Yes, we should raise up issues that need to be discussed, that need to be talked about, but there's a way to do it, Christians, that follows what God has taught us. Our politicians do a horrible job at this when it comes to how they talk to each other. And we can't change on our own our politicians, and we can't change on our own our government, and we can't change what our neighbor's doing on our own, and we can't change what our extended family is doing and how they talk. But here's the thing. I can control me. And as we head into this election year, you can control you. So question, what does it look like 
to give respect to the government and our elected officials. Let me reiterate, it doesn't mean that we agree with everything. There's a lot of things that I don't necessarily agree with, but it's the the attitude and the heart. Um, It's also the recognition of what God directs us to. Maybe a little more specific in Romans 13, this is probably the, the longest extended direction in the Bible written by Paul about how Christians should operate and view government. Paul writes, let everyone be subject to their governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Now that is very interesting to remember. And I'm gonna give you some examples of this a little bit later over the course of history. But even when it comes to governments that are not perfect, and that includes how many? Every single one over the course of history. There's no authority that's established that God has not allowed to be established. That God ultimately is the one in control. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And I think that's really important, Christians, to think about and to consider, even as we try, whether it be through our voting or through conversations with, uh, and, and listening with the friends around us to evoke good change, it's also good to remember what Paul clearly writes. So what does it look like to respect authority. There's three words that I want to quickly share with you. The first is, as we look at scripture, is to pray. Here's what I know. If we spent more time praying for our government and praying for the officials, even the ones that we do not agree with, we would be better off. There would be less Vitriol coming out of our mouths if we spent more time praying. Paul writes to Timothy about prayer. It's interesting. He writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he gets very specific. And don't forget, (laughs) Timothy, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Pray that our our government officials do what's in the best interest of our country rather than just maybe themselves or re-election. Pray that they would have bravery and boldness to do the right thing even when it's hard. Number two, pay. These are going to be rhyming words. So that... God calls us, no matter what government we're under, to pay the taxes that are asked of us, whether we agree with them or not. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 13. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities, again, are God's servants. And remember, Paul's writing about the Roman Empire here to the Roman Christians. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them if you pay taxes or owe taxes, then pay taxes. So pray, pay, and then thirdly, obey. I think this is a good summary of what it looks like. There's more that could be said to what it means to respect the government. Pray, pay, and then obey. We obey the laws. 
The only time, to be clear, that a Christian would not follow the law of the land is if we were forced or the law uh, made it clear that we had to disobey God. Then what Peter says in the book of Acts is that we must obey God rather than earthly authority. We must obey heavenly authority, godly authority, rather than earthly authority. So, as we navigate 2024, as we consider our hearts, the first thing we recognize is we need to give the government respect. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And secondly, our third fill-in, but give God your heart. Give to God those things that are God's. Your trust, your worship, your allegiance. Listen to what the psalmist writes here in Psalm 146. Said, don't put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day, their plans come to nothing. In the Hebrew, the Psalms are a poetic uh, song book, and there's a lot of color behind each of the Hebrew words. The word there translated trust has the idea of clinging or holding on to something. And I wonder sometimes in 21st century America, if we, much like the psalmist describes, are so busy and focused on clinging to policies or clinging to elections that sometimes we forget that ultimately our hands and more importantly our hearts should be clinging to God. That we participate in the government but that our trust goes to him. And I want you to realize something, and this has been true over the course of world history, that God's will and plans have never been dependent on a politician. But instead, as you look through history, you see how God uses, even over the course of history, evil kingdoms and evil rulers to fulfill his plans. Let me give you some quick examples. In the 1700s BC, there was a pharaoh in Egypt who had pretty much no time for God. But God used him to preserve the family line of Christ as through Joseph, this pharaoh invited the Israelite nation to live in Egypt during a time of famine. And then, about a thousand years later, there was a king in Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar, an evil, evil man. Did not believe in the true God, had no time for the true God, and yet, when God found it to be time to carry out what he had promised, that the Israelites would go into captivity, he used King Nebuchadnezzar to carry out his plan. 
And then about 200 years later, there was a king of Persia named Cyrus who came onto the scene, the most powerful king in the world at the time. And he made a decision that made no political sense. He allowed this free labor within his nation, namely the Israelites, to go back to Israel to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Made no political sense. You know why it happened? Because it was God's plan, ultimately. And then fast forward another 500 years, and there's this Roman ruler named Caesar Augustus. And he's filled with pride, and he's filled with greed, and so he calls for a census to be taken so he can see how big his nation is, and so he, or kingdom, and so he could tax everybody, an imperial tax. And God's like, Caesar Augustus is filled with pride and greed. I can use that. And through the census that Caesar Augustus issued, guess what happened? A young man and woman named Mary and Joseph were forced to travel to Bethlehem where Micah had prophesied that the Savior of the world would be born. And over the course of history, my friends, God has always been in control. He's the one that deserves this year and always our trust and our hearts. What's God most concerned about? Well, for Pharaoh, it wasn't that the Egyptian nation would endure. For Cyrus, it wasn't that the Persian nation would endure. For Caesar Augustus, it wasn't that the Romans would endure. All those nations, long gone, And I'll be really honest with you. While I hope and pray that America is here for a very long time, ultimately his plan has nothing to do with the United States as a nation. It has to do with his kingdom and his people and gathering all of them through the gospel to be with him forever. And ultimately, that should be the most important thing too, that we can love our nation, but we don't give our hearts to it ultimately. Ultimately, number one is God. So number four, here's your encouragement then as we look at this next year. Don't fear. God has a plan for his people. And as we close, I want you to think about how ironic that conversation was between Jesus and the Herodians and the Pharisees. Jesus wants to do an object lesson and he wants to give or to show a denarius. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you know what he didn't have? He didn't have a denarius. The one who ultimately owns all things, he had to ask for someone to give him one. But I wonder as I look at that, as I think about that, it's such a great example of the type of king that Jesus was. It wasn't about earthly riches. It wasn't about earthly power. It wasn't about earthly success. It wasn't about an earthly kingdom. 
Here's what Paul wrote years later. You know the grace, the undeserved love of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He gave up all of those heavenly riches to come to this earth to be our savior so that you, through his poverty, through his humility, through his death, might become rich. We might have the riches of eternity in heaven forever. You know why we don't need to fear? We don't need to fear because we are citizens of a far better kingdom. Yes, love your country, but love more the recognition that our primary citizenship is one that endures forever. And God has never failed his people, and he never will. Jesus is our king. No matter who's in the White House or who's in power in St. Paul, Jesus is the king that we have the joy by faith of living under his rule and his reign. And until that day we get to be with him, as we navigate this year, it's not either or. It's both and. We as followers of Jesus give the government our respect, but we give God our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the perfect way that Jesus answered this question and all of the implications even 2,000 years later. Lord, there can be, and rightfully so, many things that we who are here are, are concerned about when it comes to our country and even being a Christian in this country. And Lord, may we pray about those concerns. May we get involved as we are able. But ultimately, Lord, help us not to fear. Earthly kingdoms come and go but your kingdom lasts forever. And, and that's the one, Lord, that we thank you that you have made us a part of through Jesus Christ and what he did for us with his life, what he did for us in his death, and what he proved to us in his resurrection from the dead. Lord, continue to help us every day to remember that Jesus is our king. Pray this in his name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you his peace.